Well, I want to just start this morning by um, thanking and acknowledging those that have served and sacrificed in our nation's history, um, that have given even the ultimate sacrifice to purchase our freedoms. And um, I am so grateful that we're able to gather and worship, that we're able to, um, to freely worship the Lord together. And of course, we, we know that Jesus purchased our salvation on the cross, but in this country, there are many that have served and given their very lives. And Memorial Day weekend is a time to remember that and to be thankful for that. And I just want to express that uh, today. And um, it's good to, to have that, that in our memories of those who have served. <clears throat> or in our series that we have been doing called Ready. And um, no one has asked me ready for what. They haven't said that, so I'm, I'm glad of that. But today, the title of my message is simply one word, and it's Armageddon. And you might be wondering, well, what is Armageddon? And I want to share some of that with you today. But really, to start out with, Armageddon is a geographic location. It is a place that is somewhere between 55 and 80 miles north of Jerusalem. And it is an area that is of strategic importance because there are several intersections in that area that um, the, the, uh, the, the, the world, the, 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 that region of the world, the Near East, the, the, has... It's, it's very strategic. There are military crossroads. There are trade routes that intersect right in that general vicinity, and it's extremely uh, an important area. Uh, the, the word Armageddon in the Greek is Har uh, Megiddo, and Har Megiddo is, is uh, two parts. Har means mount. And so Armageddon is a, it's a hill, it's a mountain, it's a raised area that overlooks a plain. And that plain is a, is a, a very uh, expansive, uh, broad, um, flat area. Um, 34 um, battles or military engagements have been fought in and around the area of Armageddon. And it was Napoleon that actually, and you, 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 you think of these things and you're like, Napoleon, wasn't he kind of far from home? Uh, but there, there, are, there are military leaders that have had uh, conquests that have been uh, focused on those parts of the world. But Napoleon said that Armageddon was literally the, the greatest natural battleground in the world. And so um, this, this location, Armageddon, the Bible talks about it as the place where the armies of the world will gather together before they go down into the city of Jerusalem for the final battle for Israel and for Jerusalem. And so what I'd like to do today is to look at three different things that I think as the church, we need to know about Armageddon as we 
as we strive to live a life that is ready before God. And the first thing that I want to point out is that uh, the, the Armageddon is a message of hope in times of trouble. And you say, well, what do you really mean by that? And, and I, let, me, let me illustrate and, and say this, that last Sunday I finished um, my message on the tribulation and um, somebody came up to me and said, you know, your message um, kind of made me feel anxious. And, and um, I wanted to say, well, that could be the Holy Spirit, but I didn't do that. <laughs> um, uh, but they said, I, I found myself feeling anxious. And, and I want to remind each of us that Scripture says that God has not given us a spirit of fear. The 70s are gone, folks, okay? The 70s, that was an era at least where I, where I grew up, um, where, where we used um, fear as a motivational tactic for people to accept Christ. And, and, and they would even talk about it and say, well, hey, even if it's, if it's only out of fear, we're just glad that someone would accept Christ. Scripture says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And I want us to understand that. Paul, when he talks about the rapture of the church, he said, therefore, encourage each other with these words. He doesn't say beat yourselves over the head with it. He doesn't say fight over it. He says encourage each other with these words. God wants to encourage us. He wants to instruct us, and he wants to even correct us. What does the Bible say about the word of God? It is useful for correction and instruction in righteousness. And so God desires to instruct. He desires to encourage. He desires uh, to, to, um, to even challenge us and correct us through his word. I want to look at, at uh, Revelation 12, which really is speaking about a battle that is uh, going to take place between the dragon and Michael, the archangel. <clears throat> and it says in Re Revelation 12, verse 10, it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Friends, Satan has been defeated. I'll say that again. Maybe the mic cut out. Satan has been defeated. Amen. He's been defeated. I, that, that, is, that is something that needs to be extremely clear to us as the church. When Jesus died on the cross, Satan was defeated. Scripture says that, 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 uh, that the Messiah crushed his head and that that the serpent bruised his heel. And, other, and Jesus, he was affected physically, but he defeated the enemy. 
He defeated Satan. And Satan is a defeated foe. He has already lost. Yes, he still has power. Yes, he still has authority. But he knows that he's been defeated. He's trying to take as many people with him as he possibly can in the meantime. But when we look at Armageddon, we must look at him as the defeated foe that he is. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, speaking of Jesus, the apostle Paul says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, those are, those are uh, of hell there, that's, that's not just any authority, that is, that is demonic powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Jesus defeated Satan through the cross. But not only did Jesus defeat Satan, but we also triumph through the victory that Jesus uh, won over Satan. And when a Jew would read the book of Revelation, when a, when a, a Jew in the first century would look at the book of Revelation and read that word uh, Armageddon, they understood something. They understood the history of the location. They understood because of the book of Judges that Deborah led the people of Israel against one of the kings of Canaan and that Israel had 10,000 troops and the enemy had 900 chariots and in each chariot was a driver and an archer and they had 20,000 foot soldiers and that God won the victory. They would have remembered Gideon. Do you remember Gideon? Gideon and his 32,000 troops were going to come up against the Midianites. The Midianites had 120 plus thousand in their army. God said to Gideon, Gideon, you've got too many men. I, what would you have said if you were Gideon? God, did you not do well in math? Because 32,000 is nowhere near 120,000. But God said, Gideon, if you take too many men with you, you might be tempted to think that you won the victory and that I did not win the victory. And so I'm going to whittle down your number. And God whittles down that number from 32,000 to 300. And, And a Jew would read the word Armageddon and they would understand about the victories that God has won. Those victories took place in Armageddon, in that same valley, in that same area. So we, we have to understand that when we read that word, it signals God's victory. It tells us, it should be an encouragement to us that God has won the victory over the enemy. Revelation nineteen twenty, it says, but the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. We need to understand as the body of Christ, as a believer, that that is Satan's end game. He's defeated. It's only a matter of timing. And, and, and we talked about this before. Well, then why is God taking such a long time? It's his mercy. The only thing that keeps God from moving ahead on his timeline is knowing that today, 
today, May 30th, 2021, that on the earth there will be thousands and thousands that will accept Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. That's the only thing holding him back. God's mercy and God's grace. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 is a great reminder from Paul. He said, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the victory. And that includes over the enemy. We have the victory. So when we hear about or when we read about Armageddon, it shouldn't produce fear in us. It should produce in us a sense of victory. A sense of man, God has got this thing under his control and we're going to win because God has already won. It's a message of hope for the church that God has won the victory, but Armageddon will be the final victory over Israel on, on the behalf of Israel. The second thing I want us to look at is that it's a time of transition. It's a time of transition. We, we've, we've talked about all that, that has happened um, leading up to this point. Let me, let me just kind of review it just a little bit. The rapture has taken place. <clears throat> so that means <clears throat> the dead in Christ will have, they will rise and they will be changed and meet the Lord in the air. It means all of the living believers, they will have been raptured. They will meet Jesus in the air and so will they ever be with the Lord. Uh, and, and these are things that have already taken place. Revelation 19.1, it says, After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now, this multitude that we read about in heaven, we also read it again in verse 6. This is the bride of Christ. These are the believers that are already in heaven, and they are being clothed with their wedding garments. This is the bride of Christ. And we read what we talked about last week, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls. All of the judgments of God, those have already been carried out on the earth. We realize that the abomination of desolation has taken place. We know that, that Satan has now been empowered by the Antichrist, or he has empowered the Antichrist, rather, and that he is going to set up for himself to be worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem. The tribulation martyrs, they are now in heaven. We read about it in John chapter uh, 15, verse 2. It says, and I saw what uh, looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire standing beside the sea. Those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name, they held harps given them by God. Daniel and Ezekiel describe a world at war. Revelation chapter 16, beginning at verse 13, he says, Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are, a demonic, they are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Verse 16, then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. 
Friends, this is the transition. The battle of Armageddon is the transition between the tribulation and what the Bible calls the millennial reign of Christ. If we look at it like a teeter-totter, not that it would be they would be equal in weight, but, but it is the transitional point because something is going to happen. Something is going to happen in that battle of Armageddon that is going to change everything. This is where the Antichrist, he wants to to, uh, lead the nations of the earth at war over Israel. Look at Ezekiel chapter 38, beginning at verse 14. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, This is what the sovereign Lord says. In that day when my people Israel are living in safety, will you not take notice of it? You will come from your place in the far north, you and many nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army. You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, Gog, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. Friends, Armageddon will be the final act of the Great Tribulation. The armies of the world will be drawn up against the people of God in Israel. Remember, I talked about it last week, that there'll be 144,000 Jews that will not take the mark of the beast. They will be in Jerusalem. The world will be drawn up around Jerusalem to destroy any evidence that God exists. And that brings us to the fact that Armageddon is the setting for the second coming. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, it says, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. In the 4th and 5th century, there was a monk. His name was John Cassian. And he talked about four ways that people interpret Scripture and doctrine. And I want to just tell you what those are. The first is literal, the second is symbolic, the third ethical, and the fourth is mystical. Literal interpretation is just taking something at face value. But even in that, we, you know, if, if we're going to interpret the Bible literally, we have to know that the trees really don't clap their hands, right? I mean, I, I, I've got a lot of trees. I've not seen them clap their hands, but, but I understand what he means by that. Then there's symbolic, which really is looking for a deeper 
meaning. In other words, if we find in one spot that that God um, is, or that Scripture talks about something, and there's a correlation um, um, with something that we can we take that and we use it in other places in the Bible. Because well, if if God was saying this about the Jordan River in this spot, well, then every time He mentions the Jordan River, it must also mean the same thing. And so we're looking for the symbolism in Scripture. Then there's the ethical interpretation, which is reading between the lines and trying to apply the moral message that the Bible um, might have for us. And then there's the mystical interpretation, which is really looking to reveal the future unknown things that the Bible uh, may have or or that we interpret everything uh, in that way. But some people would interpret revelation as being poetic or very figurative. And they would interpret it not as future events. The question for you and I as followers of Christ is how do we interpret those words from Scripture? And the thing is that... I. I I don't think that we can take Revelation and say, well, I interpret Revelation figuratively, but I interpret everything else literally. Because I, 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 just, I think it puts us in a place where we're really skating on, on some thin ice. And so as you think about how you look at the Bible, look at some of the things that, that we talk about. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? That, that he was literally prophesied that he would come 750 years before he was born. The Bible talks about his life. It talks about his birth. It talks about his ministry. It talks about his death. It talks about his resurrection. Do you believe that the Bible says that Jesus was fully God and fully man? Do you believe that that Jesus the Messiah was the fulfillment of literally hundreds of prophecies from the Old Testament. That he lived a sinless life and that he died not for his own sin but for my sin and for your sin. That he predicted facts surrounding his own death and his resurrection. That he rose from the grave as he said he would. That he appeared in person And that he ascended into heaven and that, in fact, he is coming back just as he promised to take us to be with him. Our answers to these questions tell us what we feel or or how we interpret the scriptures. And so if we look at Jesus' life and we interpret those things literally, when we look at the book of Revelation, it's very difficult for us to then switch and say, no, this is just figurative because the book of Revelation is also talking about Jesus in the prophetic sense the same way Isaiah talked about Jesus in the prophetic sense. It's just when they were written. They were written 750 or 800 years different. In time, Revelation chapter 17 talks about Jesus coming. It says in verse 13, they have one purpose and they will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them. 
because he is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. The events of the tribulation will lead us to Armageddon. Jesus will physically return to the earth, the Bible says, to fight. You know, man's rebellion has been going on since the Garden of Eden. And if you're like me, I don't, I don't like to, to dwell on the negative, you know. I don't like to, I don't like to focus on, on all of the, the evil things that are happening in the world. But, you know, we really can't deny it when we look around. We really can't deny it. That there is evil in this world that we, we cannot explain. And, and we know that Jesus is good. We know that God is good. But we also have to realize that Satan is evil. And that has been existing in the hearts of men since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And God has told us that at some point, he is going to finally put an end to that evil. There will be a showdown between that good and that evil. And I'm not talking about just in the generic sense. I am talking about good as in God and Satan as in evil, that God is going to finish that conversation. The problem in our culture is that there is no more moral truth or moral goodness that is one way. Because now truth and goodness is whatever you personally declare it to be. And so when we talk about this battle over good and evil or of good and evil, see, I, I personally... Can I determine for me what is good and what is evil? You do the same for you. Our cult culturally, we've lost the footing of what is truly good. And it's not what I determine it to be. It's what God says it is. And if he says it's good, that's what's good. And if he declares it to be evil, that is what is evil. And so when we try to interpret uh, the biblical events, we do it with a world that surrounds us that there is, there is no, um, no firm foundation of truth out in the world. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. He said, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then all the people of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Friend, Armageddon is the place where every army on the face of the earth will gather to descend on the people of Israel, it will be that final battle between good and evil. And I believe that the Bible declares it to be a literal event. 
Armageddon is simply the location where it's going to start. It's simply the, the place where those, those armies will gather together before they descend on Jerusalem. And it's at this point that Jesus returns. We have a really detailed description in Revelation 19. If you've never read it before, I would encourage you to mark it in your Bible. Starting at verse 11, <clears throat> this is John's vision of Jesus returning. He said, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like burning fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. It's a little different than who we see in Matthew chapter 1 in the Gospels when Jesus came as a baby, isn't it? It's a little different than Jesus, the son of a carpenter. It's a little different than Jesus who went to the cross. I'm reminded of the conversation that Jesus had with Pilate during one of his trials. And Pilate said, are you a king? And Jesus said, yes, it is as you say. I'm sure that as Jesus went then to the cross that Pilate probably thought, man, this guy's really misguided. This guy's really delusional. One day, the world will see Jesus as he returns to earth, not as a baby, not as someone who's going to die on the cross, but he will come as the conquering king the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And he will rule and reign, the Bible says, for a thousand years. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, he said, therefore God exalted him, meaning Jesus, 
to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, we have a choice. And that choice can be made today. Will you acknowledge that Jesus is who he says he is? Will you willingly bow your knee? Will you willingly confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? We have that option. He's patient with us. He wants everyone to come to repentance, that none would perish. But there will come a day when the whole world will see him as the conquering king. And we have the choice today that we can accept him today or we can reject him and become his foe or his enemy. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the clarity that it has regarding some of these events that are going to be coming to our world at some point in the future. And Lord, I pray that as your church, as your people, that we will be ready. I pray that we will live a life of preparedness, that we will desire to walk in a place where we are ready at every moment of the day for these things that are coming to our world that we would be prepared spiritually that we would be walking in a relationship with Jesus Christ Father I pray for the one that's here today that that maybe they are not right with you and they feel that they're not ready I pray Lord that today would be the day that they simply say, Jesus, I want to be ready. I realize these things are going to be happening in our world and I want to be prepared. So God, I am calling on you. I am calling on Jesus today to be my Lord and my Savior, to forgive me of my sins. Father, thank you that in your mercy and your grace, your compassion, that you are still allowing us to do so. Father, thank you for that grace. Thank you for that mercy. But we know that at some point that will come to an end and judgment will be poured out on the earth. So Father, I pray that we will make that decision and we will do it, Father, and serve you the rest of our lives. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.